This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and today I have the privilege to talk with a Vice News Tonight correspondent covering stories at the intersection of politics and culture. He's an Emmy-nominated journalist in the category of news and documentary. He wrote for the Los Angeles Times, is a PhD candidate in East Asian Studies at Cornell University, and is currently writing a book on Japanese hip-hop. On this episode, he shares how asking questions leads to the stories he covers, the unfortunate number of times he's been confused for a protester while out with his camera crew, and trying to get his father to cross over from jazz to rap. In a moment, we take a deep dive into the story dexterity of Dexter Thomas. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hey, hey, how's it going? Hey, hey, I like that. It's going great. <laughs> Already you're hip. I knew I was not hip. <laughs> but when a guy can be hip in his first hello, then you know you're on for a good day. It can only go up from here, right? I hope so. One of the things that I'm intrigued by from journalism is how you pick your stories. Yes, it's a tough question. I mean, the brief answer is it has a check a few boxes, Right. One is I have to be interested in it, and I can become interested in it if I wasn't already, which I could expand more on if that's helpful. The other thing, though, is can I add anything to it? Which is to say that I think there is, and I still think of myself sort of as a newcomer to journalism. I, I didn't really, quote unquote, identify as a journalist until I'm not sure if even if I do now yet, you know, because I've really only been it in it maybe I guess six years at this point, which is a long time. But you know, there's people who've been in it so much longer than me. I think I have noticed the okay, everybody else is covering this. We've got to cover it. What are we doing? And sometimes, if somebody else has done a brilliant job of it, they've gotten all the facts down and they've really given you the best definitive look at it. I don't want to do it because why? There's other things out there. You know, there's not only one news event in the world right now. Even sometimes it might feel like that. There are other things I can do. And there's other things that I think are worthwhile, that I find interesting or important, that I could perhaps add something to. And I suppose that's the short version. It was a bit long, but that's a short version of how I pick stuff. Well, I noticed there was a lot of things where you were amplifying voices or creating some awareness or shining a light in sort of a dark area and bringing stuff to light, as it were. I guess I wondered now that you're getting a little bit more of a voice and people are understanding that you have a point of view, that's quite a bit different probably than getting an assignment. Yes, yes. And I don't get many assignments. I certainly can't think of any time when somebody said, you have to go do this. That doesn't really happen. Usually it's a decision made in partnership with some other people. Of course, this is the difference between just writing stuff and going to film something because what I do is visual, most of it, and not all of it, because I also do write. I still do write. I still have a couple of podcasts that I'm doing. Podcasts, you can do part of the work on your own. I have one podcast that I'm actually doing everything on my own and it's really tough. <laughs> but visually, you can't do that on your own. 
somebody is going to be editing it. Somebody's going to be pointing the camera. Logistically, you have to be working with a team, with the group. And so sometimes it's sort of the reverse. It's I'm pitching it and I need to tell people, hey, this is why you should care about this so that you will come with me to go make this thing. If the person with the camera doesn't care, I'm stuck. <laughs> That's not going to be a good piece at all. If the editor doesn't care, I, and I feel very lucky in that what I'm saying is not, I don't think, common in the news industry that you don't really get assignments. That's unusual, I think. Well, it sounds a little bit like you're on an expedition with every story, that you're the captain of the ship and you have to have this passion that makes everybody come on that storytelling journey and doing and sharing their part to tell the best story. In some ways, I think I might look like the captain sometimes visually from what you see at home, because there are things where, for example, and I get asked this a lot, is do you get to pick what you do? I, I think it's a good question because a lot of people are told, hey, go cover this. And there are pieces that I've made where it was a producer has worked on it and said, hey, we've pretty much lined everything up. The situation is this. We want you to come in. We want, for whatever reason, Dexter, we think you're the guy who will do a good interview on this. Okay, cool. I have to learn what's going on on the plane. It's quite common in the business, but it's not very normal for me. Usually I'm involved a lot more. Now, the flip side of it is that I've done everything. I have found the phenomena or whatever, the person who I want to talk to. I've done pre-interviews. I've done all these other things. And then it's just, okay, you want to come with me <laughs> and make this documentary, please? I think you do a good job of it. So that's also unusual. It's usually someone in the middle. A lot of the pieces that I make, it starts from some kind of a conversation, much like the one that we're having right now. And then it's, you know what? Maybe there's an interesting way to cover this. You're also a multilingual guy. In varying degrees of ability, yes, yeah. The question I have for you is that when you are covering something culturally where you're speaking a different language, how do you communicate effectively in each culture? Like, especially if you have a varying degree of knowledge in the language. Do you mean communicating with the people I'm speaking with? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit the subject, but also are you taking a crew from the States with you? Are you picking up people in the other area? It depends. So the four languages that I speak in order of ability, English, I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at English, Japanese, I'm fluent. And then it's sort of a toss up maybe between Spanish and Mandarin. So Japanese, it depends. So sometimes I do work with a local producer, but a lot of times I'm working with people who don't understand Japanese. And so that's the sort of strange situation. I've done interviews where actually I did, I did some just recently where actually we were in the States and I was talking with people who were from Japan. They live in the States, but English is our second language. And the only people in the room who understand what's being said is me and the dude I'm talking to. Everybody else is just going off of vibes. <laughs> They're just, all right, Dexter and this guy are laughing. I, it seems like it's cool, but I don't know what they said. I just sort of have to break down what's going on because bringing a translator slows things down. Then there's the flip side where a producer who I used to work with a lot, she's no longer working on Vice. She's going on and doing big things on her own. But a producer I would work with, Karen, actually I've done with this with a couple of people, where my Chinese is enough where if I know the context, I can understand what's being said, but I don't feel great speaking back to them in Chinese unless it's fairly simple. So I get what they're saying, but 
I'll talk back to them in English. And sometimes they understand my English enough. And so we're just talking back and forth. And this is how most people in the world communicate, right? They communicate across languages. It's really normal. And so I kind of like doing that. But yeah, sometimes they have a crew that knows everything and sometimes not. And we all just sort of figure it out. Yeah, I like that. Trying to unearth the story is your mission before you depart. Definitely. And, you know, you go in with an idea of what you may find, but you also have to be very open to all of your expectations overturned in the opening question. (laughs) You know, it's entirely possible. This sort of work, because you are, especially if you're getting on a plane, you know, you're getting on a plane, you're taking a few people with you, you know, there's a camera equipment and all this sort of thing. You have to do more work up front than you would if you were just calling somebody and writing. So you want to make sure you have an idea of what's happening, but sometimes you don't. What about logistics and safety? I read that you did a story where you were exploring the counterfeit sneaker industry, the underground economy in China, which is the knockoff business. So do you get concerned about safety entering something like that that's subversive? Oh, that was a fun one. I think more important there is perhaps the keeping the people who you're speaking with safe. Because if they're doing something that's illicit, you know, the people who need their identity hidden for various reasons, right? As a journalist, that's part of your duty is to have a conversation up front. It's just, hey, listen, are you willing to put your name out there? No. Okay. If there's a legitimate reason for that, your safety, for example, the safety of other people. Okay. Whistleblower type situation. I have been in various countries, multiple continents. The most unsafe I've been was in the United States, usually because of law enforcement, usually because of police, usually because of troops and stuff like that. And so that's the reality of it. Say covering protests in Portland, having armed people shooting flashbangs, shooting bullets, things like this. One of our camera people had, a, I think, a flashbang blow up in his face and he couldn't see. But the thing was, everybody was advancing. They were pushing everybody out of the area. And, you know, there's tear gas and there's all this other thing. So, you know, nobody can really breathe. Nobody can really see. He really can't see. And so we're talking about, I mean, grabbing somebody by the arm and saying, I know you can't see, just run. This is the direction to run. Run with us. Seeing people getting hit in the head, they're bleeding and stuff like that. So yeah, these are things you have to keep in mind, of course. You try to make good decisions in the situation, but there are plenty of situations, and I'm not even the one who's going into the worst situations, but there are plenty of situations in which you do understand that there is some danger. You just try to minimize the risk, make good decisions in the moment. In the old days, and I'd say this in a romantic movie style, the person involved in the media or the journalism got like a press badge and they they walk through the war like nothing. Like, hey, I'm just objectively telling the story. That's off the table with all of the conflict and the fake news. Like you are in constantly being challenged by one person or another when you're in a tough situation like that where the camera doesn't help you be safe, none of it helps you because there's another war going on against the media. Yeah, it makes things interesting. It definitely makes things interesting. (laughs) I like that. They can't see the smile you have, but (laughs) that smile is one that there's something truthful there and I know that you can't say everything, so. Oh, no, no. Listen, I'm happy to talk about all of that. There's nothing off limits here. If you want to ask, let's get into it. Here's my question. Have you ever been confronted by somebody, not the person you're doing the story with, but who comes from the side or behind or disrupts in a way because they 
want to have a forum. Absolutely. That's fairly normal. And I think that's not a new phenomenon either. I would say even the more the more interesting thing actually is that I think one thing that I found really interesting, right? Because before I was a journalist, I was a graduate student. I was still working on my degree. And I really thought of myself as more of a student than anything else. And so I was really into looking at the images I saw and sort of interpreting them. This was my thing. You know, this is what my PhD is in is I did a whole thing on Japanese rap music. And so I was really interested in, okay, how are people interpreting hip hop? How are they using hip hop and, and analyzing film? You know, all this sort of thing. This is the stuff that I was into. And I never expected to be the person who was in the image, if that makes sense. I was always used to analyzing the image. People who sort of criticize films, criticize literature, this sort of thing. Never anticipated being that person. What I found really interesting, actually, is just even in real time, people don't think I'm a journalist. And it's fascinating. Watching how people interact with me is one of the most instructive and interesting things in the world because people will... So, for example, if there's protests, I've lost count of how many reporters have come up and tried to interview me because they think that I'm a protester. For the listener who's not aware, I'm black. And so they see somebody and they see somebody who's just talking. And I guess something about me says, here's the guy, let's go interview. Oh, it's happened so many times. I'll have to sort of pause and say, I'm happy to talk to you. Just so you know, I, I'm a journalist and this camera crew here, they're with me. It's really common though. So, so they're profiling you in a way, both as somebody that might be of an interesting subject, but also... You look articulate because another crew is talking to you. Or something, right? And this is what I'm guessing. I had, <laughs> there was one point, this is a few years ago, I had a picture of me running in the Los Angeles Times, which I used to work for the Los Angeles Times for about a year. And maybe a year and a half after that, I'd been working for Vice for a while. And a picture of me ran in an article in which I was interviewing one of the organizers of this particular protest. And shall we say, this person is considered to be on the right wing, shall we say, just for purposes of location here uh, on the spectrum. And I'm actually interviewing him. I've got a producer next to me. She's got a notebook. There's two cameras on me. A picture of me runs, and I'm interviewing the guy. A picture of me runs and says, such and such guy, his name, argues with a protester or something like that. That was the caption. And it's just, it was so obvious that I was interviewing him, but... Because of the way that I look, again, listen, I'm black. I think it's super interesting because the idea of, oh, well, journalists need to be objective and all these other sorts of things. I'm sort of freed of that expectation in a way. Because the idea of objectivity and neutrality, I think that it's sort of a farce. And I think also the people who are assumed to be neutral, white, cisgender, heterosexual, just go down the list. There is a center, and that is assumed to be the neutral. For example, if you're a woman and you're reporting on reproductive rights, you're just, oh, you're biased. Yo, what? Like That's so absolutely ridiculous on its face, but people still, in the year of our Lord, 2022, feel comfortable saying that. It's silly. It's absolutely silly, but 
I think if you are not in that center, the flip side of one could say the disadvantage of people assuming, oh, well, you must be biased is actually there's something sort of. I was disabused of that very early because I never had that illusion that anybody would even give me the chance to be neutral or objective. And so what I do is I listen to everybody. I give everybody a fair shake. I ask you a question. I let you answer it in full. And then we move on. And if a viewer doesn't like what I have said, that's fine. But at the very least, they got to hear the other person, what they had to say. But really even kind of going back to what you're saying, even in the field outside, I will have everybody from other reporters to police assume that I'm not a reporter, that I'm just a guy who's there to protest. It's a running theme, but it's really interesting to watch. I'm sure it is. Unfortunately, the biases that run strong and even invisibly in people's lives often create them to look at stereotypes. They don't see humanity. They see clothing. They see ethnicity. They see all of those sorts of things. It happens in every walk of life, in every moment at airports and other places where even a person who thinks that they're a good person will make mistakes every moment of assuming whether it has to do with economics, somebody's wealth, their language, they make an assignment in their head without knowing that that's the game plan of who they're going to stand by or what they're going to do. It's really one of the sadder parts of where we are is that people aren't open-hearted, open-minded in stepping into things. They come with so much baggage that they're unaware of. Yeah. And I think these things have, of course, always been there. I think it's just now... People are forcing everyone else to take it more seriously. A couple of decades ago, me, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you because nobody would have let me on the air. You know what I mean? And so this wouldn't even be a conversation. And so, you know, the things that I'm telling you, are they're, they're not unique at all, I think. In some ways, I think I'm actually happy that we are having this sort of conversation as uncomfortable and ugly as it may be. I think it was James Baldwin that said that the price one pays for pursuing a profession or a calling is the intimate knowledge of its ugly side. And I think more people need to know that, that we can't be rainbows and unicorns and not how we got here, right? We have to, we have to be ready for it, not just history, but the future. Where are we heading? And it's very, very hard to course correct when we have so many people who object to change. Like, yeah, but that's not how we do it. That's not how my parents did it or whatever reason. We can't change the name of our football team, whatever. Yeah, you can. They just named it one time. They can name it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People go, well, we've always had that statue in town. No, you haven't. Yeah, it's always been a shitty yeah, statue. <laughs> it got put there to remind them of a shitty situation. Yeah. The stories that people tell themselves, again, it's always fascinating to me. I come into this industry as a student, and I still consider myself one. And so a lot of what I'm doing is I look at, you know, why is this person doing that? I feel like it's not so helpful to say, oh, this is a bad person. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Why are they doing that? What do they get out of this? For example, somebody was bringing this up to me. Uh, the other day and I forgot about it there was a piece I did so you'll probably remember the footage from Charlottesville the Unite the Right rally right all of that 
so that was one of my colleagues that went there ellie also absolute genius who, who did that and everybody who worked on that is just, just incredibly sharp but i was looking at i wasn't there I, I think i was covering something else but i was looking at some of the footage and i saw that the main dude this guy chris cantwell he has a tattoo on his arm which is depending on who you ask it's either Jap japanese or chinese it's, it's the same writing system um but it's the character, I want to say it was for truth on his arm. Okay, white supremacist has an Asian tattoo on his Why? That doesn't make any sense. Of all the symbols you could have, why that? And I was just sort of talking to people, and they were just, oh, why? Well, that's silly. Maybe he's just not very smart. And it's just, no, well, a lot of white supremacists are really into Asia. They're really, really, really into Asia. You know, there's all sorts of reasons for it, but that's one of those things that I find more value in is taking a step back. There's all sorts of reasons for this, but essentially, the, I think, to summarize the piece that I did, a lot of people, a lot of white supremacists look at Japan specifically as a homogenous country, which it's not really quite, but that's their sort of ideal of an ethnostate which is to say, oh, there's only Japanese in Japan, which again, isn't quite true. But if we could look at Japan so successful, if we could have what they have, which is to say, if we could have an all white country, all of our problems would go away. Patently, this is very silly, right? There are a lot of mostly white countries that also aren't doing so hot. But this is sort of the logic. And the logic is created by realizing that, oh, shoot, Japan was at least doing very well economically. How do we explain that? And so it's sort of this weird reverse logic, if you see what I'm saying. But these are things where instead of, I think there's something to be gained from actually analyzing why people do the things they do, rather than just sort of writing it off. You know, I think certainly avoiding dangerous people is very advisable. I would encourage everybody to do that. But, you know, I think it doesn't end there for me, I suppose. For others, that's fine. But for me, I'm always interested in understanding why people do what they do. So you saw that Japanese symbol on the white supremacist, which created a curiosity for you. And the deeper dive in your story was why white supremacists focus so much on that Japanese culture. It's a pretty good leap for a storyteller to want to go down a rabbit hole that's already uncomfortable. And I wonder, you didn't talk to that white supremacist. So you don't necessarily know why he picked that symbol. And even if he knew that meant truth, maybe he just liked the way it looked. Right. We, we can guess. We can guess. <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting the way you observe the moment. That's what makes you a storyteller versus somebody who's taking a side at that moment. You're saying there's more to this story. Right. And I think the importance of, hey, this event is occurring, that's of course there. And again, I've, I've done that. I've done the breaking news stuff and I'm happy to go and, hey, here's where the quote unquote action is. That doesn't bother me either. I and mean, I'm fine with that. But I also find value in trying to piece together, you know, look at things from a different angle. That's something that fascinates me. That thing with the tattoo, that was just something that I happened to be familiar with in my own studies. I had seen stuff like that before, but there's plenty of other things where I don't know much about it. And I 
see something that I can't quite understand. It's just, okay, what, what can I read? Who can I talk to that could help explain this to me? And then now that I know a little bit about this, how can I help teach other people about it? And it's important to remember you're fluent in Japanese and then you majored in Japanese hip hop or you got your master's in Japanese hip hop? PhD. For clarification, there is no major called Japanese hip hop, which I know it's confusing, but yes, a PhD in Asian studies, but my topic that I wrote my dissertation on was on Japanese hip hop. All right. We'll call it Japanese hip hop adjacent. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> but that's a funny thing. You mentioned it earlier, and it's casual to you to say Japanese hip hop, but I think probably to most people, it sounds like an anomaly. It sounds like a Amish electrician. Like a mix of things that don't go together. Yeah, but I know that it's true, and I know that there was an arrival of hip-hop in Japan and a big rise of it. So maybe because you have an expertise in this area, tell me a little bit about your choice for that to be the thing that you did your studying on. Yeah, at first it started with something fairly simple, which was I was a DJ at my college radio station, KUCR at UC Riverside, and I got to the point where I was one of the guys who wasn't just the DJ. I was also responsible for the music that got played on the air, the music that got put in the library. So we're talking early 2000s here. CDs are still king. And record labels, anybody from Sony to some kid in their basement would send you a record, want you to play it. I had a friend, still have a friend, uh, who he was in charge of punk and indie and I was in charge of hip hop and electronic and there would be an indie group or a punk group that would come in from Japan and they would just immediately add it to the library this is just cool it's Japanese it's cool I didn't really think like that I didn't particularly care about Japanese culture really that much but I at some point realized oh I never get anything from Japan you know there's never any rap from Japan do they even have it this is early 2000s, it's not that easy to find. And I sort of got interested in, okay, do they even have it? So fast forward, I ended up going to Japan, studying abroad. And my topic was Japanese hip hop. And I got there and I didn't know what my, you know, what, what am I going to do with this, right? Essentially the scholarship that I was on, you have two years to figure something out and either get into a degree program in Japan or we're going to send you home. And so basically what I did was they have shops where you can just rent music like you rent a video. Again, early 2000s, you could still rent videos and uh, DVDs and stuff like that. So I started at A, at the beginning of the alphabet, and I just started working my way over and listened to every single thing they had. But I realized at one point that, yo, there's a bunch of really weird nationalist stuff happening here. It's borderline racist. And I found that really interesting because, again, it's rap music. That's the one genre that you're not supposed to be racist in, but it was happening and became really interested. How is this happening? There was the interest to the rabbit hole was trying to explain that. And that took me everywhere from looking at comic books to reading all the magazines and stuff like that. Of course, the hip hop magazines. But, you know, that, that took me on a long trip through all sorts of different periods of Japanese history, but also American history. And it was all in Japanese. Yes. So the music and the comic books and the newspaper, you were doing that all in Japanese. Right. And just figuring out as I went along. But yeah, it, it all started from just a really simple question that ballooned into a, <laughs> into a doctorate, which I did not see happening at the time. But sometimes questions do that. 
Do you do that same thing in your own life? Like when you have a question, do you find yourself unsatisfied until you get an answer? Yes, very much so. I'll find things and then just get really interested in them and then get borderline obsessed with them. It just really, really obscure stuff. Oh, man. I know an embarrassing amount about early 80s video games. I couldn't even afford this stuff. Like I had some of these games when I was a kid, but like I know it, it's it's embarrassing. <laughs> but but these are things that I get really interested in, you know. No, no, don't. Here's the funny thing. I feel like I can hook you up with my 21 year old who also has collected all these old consoles and all these games and all the cartridges and all the and and I'm thinking this stuff doesn't even work now. And he goes, "Oh, the history is unbelievable. The stories." Oh, it is. It all ends up connecting somehow. You listen to music that was being made on this really old, antiquated hardware, which was really, really limited. If you look at hip-hop, for example, the people were using tools that for things that they were not intended for. So, for example, they're going into their parents' record collection. They're taking a bass line from an old James Brown record. They're taking some drums from, you know, a Beatles record or something like that. And they're layering it on top of each other to make something new, right? This is not what the people who made the record players wanted them to do with this. This is not what people who were making some of these very basic instruments intended for them to do. I find that sort of thing actually really interesting. How people take tools that weren't meant for something and just end up creating this amazing art out of it kind of out of nowhere i'm just fascinated by by how people do that i love it is it partly because it's affordable to them accessible to them they have a, a bounty of creativity but they don't have a bounty of money or is it just a i mean that's sort of the early you know mode of hip-hop right which is you don't need a band and maybe not everybody can get instruments but you can make something, you know, for years now, th there was a point at which people were saying, oh, you know, bedroom producers, you know, people who make music on a laptop. Who's not making music on a laptop now? You know, what I mean, that's that's the norm. I find that just really, really interesting. But again, people taking something and, and looking at it a, a slightly different way. You know, I think this is done everywhere. I think musicians do this. I think movie makers do this. I think, I think comedians do this. I think everybody does this. Yeah. I mean, even the rise in breakdancing physically you have your body and then it's challenging the aspects of that and really a sheet of cardboard and you're in business you know what i mean like if you want to just keep the dirt off you yeah doing something that your body that's not what you're supposed to do <laughs> your body becomes your gym like you don't get a gym membership you go i physically want to a challenge i want to be better than that person it feels like a very competitive nature of growing creatively is you see something happening and you want to be on the scene, but in order to be on the scene of any kind, and this happens in art and music, you've got to make a splash. Like you've got to come up with a move or you've got to create a vibe. To be derivative of something doesn't necessarily bring attention. True. Very true. Yeah. What new things, what interesting things can you do with it? Absolutely. Yeah. And the people we talk about in any genre of the arts are usually somebody who's breaking through and they're not always accepted. 20 years later, everybody who learns from that person, they're the one that 
jumped in the volcano for everybody else. Yeah, and sometimes it's just looking at something in a slightly different way. I mean, I think this is something that comedy, when it's good, excels at. Taking something really, just truly mundane and saying, have you thought about this? And actually making you look at the world a completely different way. And it's so simple. It's a person with a microphone and sometimes not even that. And just such limited tools and your ability to do things with expressions or, or timing or how you say something, rhythm, all these sorts of things. You know, that's you know, always something I admire about comedians is, is their ability to do stuff that you could write a whole dissertation or somebody could just have a, a one liner that just captures something. Or turns your expectations upside down over the course of a five-minute set. It's, it's amazing. Especially if they give you a perspective. If something's anchored in the truth and there's an aha in it, and there's a twist that shocks you when you go, wait a minute, this isn't at all how I saw that before. And I always admire the tenacity of the comic to take a stand. It's a forum where... You release this beast, and if you can't stand behind it, the audience, if they laugh or they approve or they see that humor, you get that laughter. If the, if it falls flat, it's just the worst thing in the world to, to make a statement that has no impact on the world. Yeah, exactly. This is actually why I really, I wonder how you think about this, because I find academia and comedy and news, shall we say, journalism, sort of tied together in this sort of interesting triple relationship, which is that at its best, I think, academia, right, scholarship, the idea is that you're trying to get closer to the truth somehow, right? You're trying to, it's like, I think this is right, but if I'm wrong, somebody will let me know, right? Somebody else will write an article about it and they will tell me, but I'm not really going to get my feelings hurt about it because, hey, we're all heading the same direction. And, hey, I wrote one plus one equals three. It's just, hey, actually, buddy, it's it's actually one plus one equals 1.9. And then somebody else comes along and says, y'all, look, it's two. It's actually two. It's just, we can, we're all thankful because somebody helped us get closer, right? I think comedy is is similar in that, I find it really interesting when, because I've been able to speak to enough comedians and they'll tell me, yo, my first job is to make people laugh. If I can't do that, what am I doing? I'm out. You know, nobody's going to listen to me. Well, then I'm doing the news, right? Then you're doing the news. Exactly. And I think the conversation about punching up versus punching down, things that are that are harmful, I think these are interesting too. But, you know, I think we're in an interesting time where... I don't know. I suppose things seem, oh, this is so hard to do. I don't really think it's all that hard, actually. It doesn't seem so hard, especially for, you know, if you're actually in good faith trying to get to the truth, I think that nine times out of 10, I think it works out. Well, I guess this is where I would challenge that. Well, the thing is, the truth is getting cloudier and cloudier because of, and I'm going to give credit in quotes to fake news, fake news exploded. There was always propaganda. There was always untruths. But the idea that fake news was being created all the time, more and more. And at times, the head of the fake news 
was also the head of the government, like waking up and sending a note out that everybody then has to respond to and find out what's at the bottom of this. So I guess the point is, and again, I'm not taking any political side. I'm saying the fact that there's this generated amount of news that we're always, as you said, searching for the truth. So now we have every version of that, that you can Google the answer you want whether it's right or wrong. Yes, you can Google the answer you want, yeah. Google the answer you want and then put it out on Facebook and perpetuate it so that the cloud gets thicker for people to understand. And for anybody, doesn't matter what your outlet is, when you choose one outlet and you listen to only that outlet and then you repeat only that outlet, which is in every case owned by a corporation that has a political bias or has an economic interest in how it works, it gets very, very hard to shovel through it. It's not like you go down to the center of town and see the fortune teller who tells you this is the truth of it. And now everybody can believe the soothsayer. That's not it at all. It's it's obfuscated, I guess, by volume of false facts. I think that is where a comedian can cut through a lot of that. I think the stakes are high because, again, I think there are things that I could spend 10 minutes trying to explain to somebody, but most documentaries would take a very long time to set things up and give you the background or whatever. A good comedian can truly cut through all of that and do it almost immediately, just like a good rapper can. And I think that the craft of that, the ability to do that is phenomenal. And sometimes all that that takes is, because there, there, are, there are multiple ways of arriving at truths, if that makes sense. Let me, let me put it to you like this. How do you eat an apple? I generally take one big bite out of the side of it so that it looks like the logo of the Apple computer. Yes. This is what I'm talking about, right? I always did this also until very recently. So you know how you eat the apple and then you're left with a core and then probably you throw the core away. So that's not the only way to eat the apple. If you start from the bottom, there is no core. It, this this sounds like I'm making it up if you've never done this, but... No, no, <laughs> it's okay. I understand. I'm imagining now eating it from the bottom up, go ahead and eat right through the seeds, and then all you're left with is a stem? You have a stem, yeah. So there's nothing to throw away. I mean, not quite like eating grapes or something like that, but of course, probably spit the seeds out or whatever and throw the stem away. But what I mean by that is that what you're doing is you're taking an apple and all you're doing, being a little corny here, you're actually just changing your perspective. You're turning it 90 degrees on its side. And if you do that, the, you get an entirely different result. And this is what I'm talking about, right? Is It's so simple. And I think it's just, I saw it online one day and I thought, this can't be true. I ate the apple and I became obsessed with it. And I started like buying, I don't really even like apples. I started buying apples just as part of regular groceries. <laughs> you got to like apples, by the way. When you do this research, you got to like apples. I didn't, but I started to, I started kind of becoming obsessed with apples. And I mean, it sounds wild to say it, but an apple core is a social construct. I realize I sound completely unhinged, but it actually is. And it's something that Again, the stakes on this are quite low, right? We're talking about eating apples. Um, it's not important. I understand the analogy, and I would say that I don't think you're unhinged at all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not saying you're right in the head, but, 
but what you're actually leaning into, I saw a TED talk and I wish I could remember the person who did it, but they were talking about the design of the space capsules and the width of them and all of that kind of stuff and how things got designed. And it all had to do with the size of the tunnel that they had to take it through to get it to the launch pad. And then the size of the tunnel was dictated by the trains and the things that were there, which were dictated by the tracks, which were dictated by the wagon wheel distance that a horse and buggy took. Like all of that took us back to a point where let's put it on horsepower, but those tracks in the dirt led to the size of the tunnel, which led to like, so the point is, is we carry the baggage of all of those sorts of things without thinking or changing our perspective on it. So your Apple analogy is actually quite good to say, always look around the subject, look inside, look outside, take another approach. I mean, I think that's probably what makes you an outstanding journalist is that you're willing to look through a different lens. That's very kind of you to say. I try to. Well, it's mostly a, a support of your Apple dissertation. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and, and that really is just, it's, it's more to say that sometimes the sort of obvious way to look at things isn't, isn't certainly the only way, right? And that's sort of, and even going back to what you were saying earlier is, what is the turning an Apple 90 degrees on its side of this particular quote unquote story, right? What is different about this? Who is not being spoken to? Everybody has interviewed this person and that person and this person. Who are we not hearing from? Who am I curious about? And to go to your example, you know, hip hop, talk about trains. There are various ways to look at the development of hip hop, why it sounds like it did, right? I think one thing, you know, and I didn't really think about this and start, I started hanging out with, you know, when I was in grad school, I was hanging out with all these city planners and I forget who told me this or how this even came up. Why did hip hop start in New York like it did? And why was there battle culture and stuff like that? It's because people could get on trains. People can get on trains and go battle people in the next borough. And, you know, you can jump the turnstile, you can get there. Now think over to why did West Coast music sound so bass heavy? Because we're really into cars over here. And so you got a car, you got big subwoofers and stuff like that. Listen, listen to the stuff they were doing and it, it didn't hit like that. They weren't into bass like that, like we were out here and like we were, like people were in the South. So it even just geography even the makeup of a city changes the sound of things. These are things that I think people's different life experiences change that. Again, this is what I'm saying is I think comedians will think of something. I have a colleague actually who actually is a comedian. That's what he did before he started doing this. Similar to me as a correspondent, he just has a different way of looking at things. A city planner is going to look at a problem or make a documentary in a different way than, than I would. And I think that is one of the strongest arguments one can have for whatever we want to call diversity nowadays. But at the very least, it's certainly worth talking to other people and trying to figure out, okay, what is another way of looking at this, at this problem or this, this situation that might get me closer to some kind of truth? There's a big advantage to listening to more voices. And I think the situation is we're not inviting more voices to the top of the party. I have 
frequent conversations with a writer friend about ethnicity in casting and the visibility is getting higher in commercials, but it's not that at the directorial level, or it's not at the producer level, it's not at the corporate level, it's not at the place where we're really amplifying the voice. And I don't want to call it performative, but it seems to be a veneer, which is we're solving the problem externally by making every commercial look like a Benetton commercial. So I'm not being flip, I guess I'm saying that no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm very critical of that sort of thing also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there are p- plenty of talented actors that can play those roles. And I think that casting is fantastic. I don't fault that part of it. It just isn't checking boxes to invite people to the final party. You need to invite them to the planning of the food and the music. If you really want voices involved, you need to involve them from the get-go. And it's always going to be uncomfortable. It's often, shall I say, going to be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. But hopefully you can learn to enjoy the process of, man, somebody told me some stuff I never heard. There's a whole other way of looking at something. There's another way to eat the apple, right? Didn't know that. Um, It seems weird. But at least I know about this now. Well, you're sowing seeds of truth. You're the new Johnny Appleseed of this podcast. (laughs) if you were sending me to experience hip-hop for the first time what first couple of things should i listen to that you might find to be a favorable experience for me oh my gosh i think that it's funny you say that because i have this long argument that's been going on with my father for probably the last most of my life actually about how hip-hop either is or is not music my dad's a jazz dude jazz grew up on soul james brown was that dude and so when i was a kid he was very much what are you listening to this is garbage they're stealing music these people are stealing music and talking about bad stuff what are you doing actually get this out of my house he was my father and so he could make these rules and so of course i more or less followed those rules but it's changed actually quite a bit because we've started to I like to think that he's starting he's starting to come around uh, to my side of it but my dad being a jazz musician playing trumpet he appreciates music and expression and so I suppose what I would say if I was to give somebody hey here's where to start is just start on the continuum. Hip-hop is ultimately, it is a conversation. In the same way that a good comedian set, you feel the give and the take, you feel the energy in the room, the difference between you know an album and, and a live thing, and that's why you watch the live thing, because you can feel it, right? Hip-hop is that conversation in recorded form. So go listen to James Brown, and then, I mean, if, if you can't appreciate James Brown, I don't know what to t- <laughs> I don't know what to tell anybody who can't appreciate James Brown. But you know, start with James Brown, and then go, you know, and start off. Even go listen to something like Nas. Go listen to Illmatic. Now, is it one to one? No. And the energy is very different. You know, James Brown is yelling and he's screaming and he's dancing, and Nas is just—he's just a really jaded kid at this point when this album came out. But you can feel when you're able to identify there's a similar energy here. There's almost speak there. One of these guys is yelling. One of these guys is he, he sounds like he's 
lived through a war because he has where he grew up. He's absolutely lived through a, it's a war zone, but somehow they're speaking the same language. That's what I say. What was the song or artist that opened the door to the conversation with your dad? Oh my gosh. For me and my dad, it wasn't a particular song, I think. I think there were things that he just, there were things he didn't like the message of. I'm a young black kid. He's he's watching me listen to all this stuff, and he, he sees what where some of the people end up. We're talking mid-90s here. But some of it, you know, musically, it was just, this is not music. And I, I think it was that very same thing. It was it was me getting to know his music better because I used to think the same thing. I was just, yo, this is old. It's whack. It's uninteresting. This is old people music. And then I started getting more into his stuff and I would bring him things and he will actually hit me up and say, he'll find hip hop somewhere and he'll send it to me. It's the funniest thing in the world. He'll say, hey, what do you think about this? So, yo, dad, this is kind of whack. <laughs> you know? uh, because once you go whack, you never go back. You do not. And that's it. You can't, you're done. I really very much appreciate you sharing your perspective on it and you're seeking the truth and amplifying voices. And again, shining that light. I think the folks that want to find out more about you can follow you DexDigi on Instagram and Twitter. At DexDigi, I guess it is. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You have a, an amazing amount of stories that we didn't get to talk about. Going to the Congo to reveal the art of voodoo wrestling, which that sentence blows my mind to even know you did that. And speaking with survivors at mass shootings and so many other things they can find out by tracking you and finding out more about it. I wish you continued success on your storytelling and finding new ways to look at things. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring.